Morning, glory and evening, grace, America. Welcome to a special two-hour edition of the Hillsdale Dialogues. I know uh, many of you objected last week on July 4th when I did not play a Hillsdale Dialogue, but it is my tradition with which Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, will not quarrel to replay my three-hour interview with Dr. Harry Jaffa on that day every year, and always to great benefit of everyone. So last Friday was Harry Jaffa. This Friday is his student, Dr. Larry Arn, and Dr. Arn's student, Professor Matthew Gaetano, who is a teacher at Hillsdale where he is teaching the Reformation. And today we're going to tackle Luther. And since we didn't have a Hillsdale dialogue last week, we're going to take both hours to do this. And as I said to the gentleman before we began, I'm quite certain this will generate more controversy than any other show we've done because Luther just does that. Uh, Dr. Arn, welcome. I- I'm sure you agree with my uh, decision to replay Harry Jaffa last week as opposed to begin Luther. You know, he's uh, 93 now, and uh, l- the-, the recent word you can never quite tell is that he's declining. And when he passes the day, when that day comes, it'll be a very sad day. And we will, however, we will always have his discussion of the Declaration, which is really quite magnificent. And I got the same amount of mail from last week that I always do, voluminous, uh, because people hear him for the first time. And uh, and that we taped probably 10 years ago. Yeah, he spent his life on that. uh, And and it's remarkable. Uh, So uh, let's begin and talk a little bit, uh, Dr. Gaetano or Professor Gaetano, why uh, are you so interested in Luther and why do you teach the Reformation course, both for the uh, online Hillsdale course on Western Heritage, but also for the undergraduates? That's a great question, Hugh. uh, Again, it's it's great to be back with you. But, I mean, the Reformation is one of the most critical moments in, you know, the history of Western civilization. It's a a time uh, when some of these uh, unities that had grown up over the course of the Middle Ages are being brought into significant uh, controversy, that the way in which Rome provided some sort of stability, some sort of point of contact for uh, Christians throughout the Latin West, that that's no longer the case. In fact, many Christians in England, in Germany, and and elsewhere look at the Pope as the Antichrist. And so uh, this leads to a a major shift in the way in which uh, Europeans understood themselves, their relationship to the great long history of Christianity, and uh, is important for understanding some of the developments that lead to uh, what we think of as the modern world. Uh, we are coming up on the 500th anniversary. We are 497 years removed from the legendary nailing of the 95 Theses to the cathedral door. And I, as I was preparing, I understand that that is disputed by some as to whether or not it That's occurred. Right. But I also said two weeks ago, before we took our week break, that I think of, of Luther as the man of the millennium in a Time magazine kind of way. Uh, because he he broke the century, he broke the millennium in half. And uh, Dr. Arn, I wonder what you think about that. I also think I'm sort of the first modern revolutionary around whom many people could find examples for their conduct in the future centuries. Well, first of all, I like you to think in a Time Magazine kind of way. (laughs) (laughs) Backwards ran sentences till reeled the mind. That's an inside joke. (laughs) (laughs) But second, um, uh, look what he did. You know, I mean, the the structure of the church 
that it has existed in the 16th century understood itself to be 1,600 years in the building and a great continuity all the way through it. And here comes a radical doctrine that deprives the church of a kind of authority that it claimed for itself and successfully around much of the world, for beginning with much of especially northern Europe. So it was a turning point. I mean, you won't say it's a turning point like the birth of Jesus. But since then, hard to think of a bigger one. Uh, I, I also, it, it, what he broke was enormous, uh, Professor Gaetano. I was with my friend Bud in the um, Dominican Republic once, and, and we turned the corner in downtown Santa Domenico and saw there Santa Maria, uh, the cathedral. And I pointed out to him that it was finished before Luther began. And mm. so it was, and that kind of brought him up short. And I said, you know, using my papist rhetoric on him, how exactly did he come by the authority to do what he did? And so what's the answer to that? That's a great, another great question. I think it is important to recognize that Luther, even in his own time, was seen to be this kind of man of the century, a heroic figure. He was called by those not only in Germany, but in uh, what's today Switzerland. He was called the German Hercules, standing up against the emperor and against the, and against the pope as, a, as, a, as an Augustinian friar. I mean, he's what we would think of today as, you know, a, a monk, a priest, a professor of theology. This, this isn't the makings for the image of Hercules that I think many of us have. So he is seen that way, and he's seen as having this kind of potential of, of really transforming the way in which the world at that time was organized. But I think it's really important to recognize, and, and uh, this qualifies what I said in my opening remarks, that Luther himself didn't see himself as revolutionary, as pushing towards some great modern new world. And he really hated the people. And I, I don't think that that's really a poorly chosen word. He really despised those who saw him as beginning some kind of unfolding process that will only culminate over the course of decades and centuries. For him, for, for Luther, it was, it, was a very, it was in some ways a very simple thing. It wasn't about reform. It wasn't even about the immorality of the church. He, he saw that as something that's typical of the human condition. For him, it was the gospel. It was the good news that... Uh, human beings are justified by faith alone, by throwing themselves on the mercy of God who is humbled in Jesus Christ. And for, and for Luther, that was the central message. And he really was opposed to those who wanted to you know, break the icons and throw out many of the sacraments. For, for him, he, he really cherished a lot of traditional, uh, what we think of as Catholic practices, and only would just uh, take away those that he saw as contradicting Scripture and contradicting the doctrine of justification by faith alone. When we come back after the break, I want to do a little biography before we launch into his, his teachings, his theories, and his most uh, well-known pronouncements. But Dr. Ron, I just uh, had finished reading the Madison book by Lynn Cheney and before that John Meacham's book on Jefferson. So I was thinking about Jefferson, and what a contrast. Jefferson reveled in being understood as a revolutionary, right? And oh, if, yeah. And Luther... <laughs> Uh, recoils from it. What's the what's the difference, though, if you both make a revolution? Well, there's a similarity and a difference. The similarity is Jefferson thought he was stating principles that had always been true and that obedience to them was the only way. And Luther very much thought that. That's what Matthew just said. Uh, Jefferson thought also that he was overturning a world where the practice of those principles 
had either neither ever been fully instituted or was being ignored. So he did proclaim himself a changer of things. Uh, and, doc, and Professor Gaetano, did Luther at least understand himself as a changer of things? He did see himself as proclaiming uh, the true gospel. At, at times, you see in him an image, an image of himself not only as a priest, as a professor of theology, which did give him significant authority in that time. He did have credentials, unlike many of the other more radical figures, and he pointed that out, that he had a, a doctorate. Uh, but, you know, I, I, the other image that he sometimes has of himself it is as a prophet, and a prophet of the last days, that it wasn't that he was beginning something new and fresh that would last for centuries. He really saw himself at, at many points in his life as living at the end, at the end of all things, and that Satan, uh, through the, the papacy, the mother of all the churches, had set up the Antichrist, and there was a remnant called out to proclaim the gospel. That's a very different image, I think, of someone, you know, as a prophet of the last days than the image that Jefferson has as perhaps a, a kind of point of dawn for a, a, a better, greater uh, world to come. Very well said. The beginning uh, as opposed to the end of things. When we come back from break, a biography on Luther, history of the Reformation, and then we go into those very dangerous waters where we're going to talk about what Luther believed. And I know, as I said, many of you will think we leave something out or we omit too much or we skip over too quickly, but it's only two hours. And so Martin Luther gets double the ordinary amount of time we give someone because of his significance and with double the amount of expertise. For all of the Hillsdale Dialogues, past, present, and future, go to www.hugh4hillsdale.com. For all of the Hillsdale courses, including the Western Heritage course, in which uh, Professor Gaetano lectures on the entire Reformation at length, you go to hillsdale.edu. And while you're at hillsdale.edu, be sure to sign up for Imprimus, which is the Speech, uh, the Speech Digest, which comes out every single month from the college. That's hillsdale.edu. I'll be right back with Dr. Larry Arn, Professor Matthew Gaetano, as we continue our Hillsdale Dialogue on this the week after the 4th of July. It is the Hugh Hewitt Show. 21 minutes after the hour, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. Welcome to an expanded edition of the Hillsdale Dialogues on this Friday, July the 11th, with Dr. Larry Arn, President of Hillsdale College, Professor Matthew Gaetano, one of his colleagues who did his undergraduate degree at Hillsdale and his uh, master's in dissertation work at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, where he has focused in on Renaissance intellectual history. Professor Gaetano teaches the course on the Reformation at Hillsdale. He is also online at the Hillsdale Western Civilization Culture course uh, with an extraordinary offering on uh, the Renaissance Reformation and Counter-Reformation. Boy, in one hour, that's got to be quite the lecture, uh, Professor Gaetano. Uh, So uh, we are talking about Martin Luther today in two hours. And before I go to the biography, uh, poor Tetzel, I'm wondering, if he had taken left as opposed to the right turn and hadn't gone to Wittenberg, would this have inevitably happened somewhere else? Uh, Let me ask you that, Professor Gaetano. The really remarkable thing about Luther's early life is is how if you if you understand Luther in his own context that some of the things that do happen seem seem almost to be accidental that they didn't have to happen they weren't inevitable that Luther in 1516 17 18 even into 1519 and 20 really saw himself as just being a professor of theology who was a preacher of God's word who saw someone teaching 
uh, an error about this doctrine of indulgences. Uh, and That's Tetzel for the benefit of our th- audience. This is Tetzel, yeah. who was a, a preacher who was, who was going around uh, serving the Archbishop Albrecht of Mainz. So he was he was raising money to build a big church, right? The Pope Leo X was interested in really establishing himself in Rome, and and this is you know the the popes of this period in the early 16th century, Alexander VI, the Borgias. I mean, these are the most notorious popes in all of history. Leo X wasn't as much this kind of notorious figure, but he he was the the son of Lorenzo de' Medici, right? He was he was a Florentine elite, and you know, he saw himself as as really serving the church by making Rome a place where the papacy could really establish itself. Remember, in the 14th century, the popes were in Avignon in southern France. And in the 15th century, early 15th century, you have multiple popes. And, and Rome had always been a very difficult place because of the fights between the nobility and so on. And the popes wanted to really establish themselves. And these big building projects, the magnificence of those building projects that I think many of us have enjoyed in going to Rome – were part of the popes really kind of asserting their place within this kind of Roman, complex Roman milieu. Uh, but in do, the, to do that, you, they needed to raise money, and these indulgences were, in fact, a part of that. And well, also, what, yeah. what was the transaction, Matthew? So indulgences, it's, it's a very complex doctrine. Now, of course, no one said out loud, if you give us money, we will have your sins be you know, addressed. You know, that was the sin of simony, right, which goes back to this first century figure that's mentioned in Scripture, Simon, who... By the way, if you're raising money, it'd be a pretty good spot to be in. Yes, it would be. (laughs) It would be very fine. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, something is occurring to President (laughs) Arnold. That's right. If only he could forgive sin. We're we're doing that. We're doing okay without that. (laughs) Right. Um, But basically, the idea was, you know, not buying and selling spiritual benefits because that was just seen as you know sinful as as something that all of the reformers for previous you know hundreds of years before the reformation were opposed to and they saw tendencies towards that just in 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 human interactions but the idea was well if you do a certain good work that the temporal punishments of your sin in other words those that you'd have to address with penances on earth prayers good works and other things or in purgatory uh, after death, before being brought to heaven, that the idea was that you could deal with some of these temporal, not eternal, not hellfire, because only Christ could do that, but the temporal limited punishments of your sins through certain good works. And one of those good works was giving money to the church. And so you could see how very easily this kind of complex justification could turn into something that really looked like buying and selling these spiritual benefits. And, and Luther was profoundly opposed to this sort of thing. Well, the corruption of any institution by money is almost inevitable exactly. uh, unless it's guarded against. And Tetzel is a Dominican, I believe, right? And he's, he's itinerant and he's off wandering around. But if he hadn't gone into Luther's way... Would Luther have ended up being Luther anyway because of what he was writing? I guess that's what I'm getting at. The, there, there, it, it's, it's impossible to know for sure. Uh, what's really remarkable is in September of 1517, of course, the famous 95 Theses uh, being, you know, that debate being initiated with October 31st, 1517. So the month before, Luther 
put forth a radical disputation against scholastic theology, where he really emphasized this deep doctrine of human sinfulness, this way in which there's nothing, absolutely nothing that even Christians can do to please God, and they can only despair, and rooted in that despair, then fling themselves on the mercy of God revealed in Christ. And, and he's really starting to lay that, that doctrine out in the month before his much more modest, I would argue, much more modest 95 Theses. Most of the 95 Theses are pretty standard, but which made Luther, this German friar up in northern Germany, famous? It was the debate about indulgences, in part because, uh, sad to say, it hit the pocketbooks of some really powerful men in, in the Europe of that time. It hit the same. He, he, so, he, so let me make a distinction here that's important. First of all, this is a questionable practice. And Matthew just laid it out, right? First of all, isn't it plausible to think that if you do really good things that they will offset really bad things you do? There's some common sense in that. So you can see how they, they, they might go in that direction. And on the other hand, they did consistently and explicitly condemn the idea that you could forgive your sins by giving the church money. So they're in a questionable situation. And this doctrine of Luther's about faith and works becomes important in part because of that questionable situation. It ignites a fire in part because of the power of these very well-to-do and powerful people. But the doctrine is separate from that thing. It's something he's working on anyway. He's okay. got a very radical idea about what salvation is and the relation between man and God. And he didn't come to that because he was offended by these indulgences. Right. What, 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 what I think the indulgence controversy really does to Luther, I mean, it does deepen his uh, reflection on the way in which the whole doctrine of penance, right? And we've all seen it in the movies, you know, going to confession, addressing your sins in that way, that he, he saw this as, interestingly enough, making things a little too easy. We often think of the late medieval Christian as burdened by all of these complex practices, but, and, and that Luther was this liberator. But Luther really saw a lot of these medieval uh, religious practices as making things a little bit too simple. How interesting. Huh. And, that, and that Christians think, oh, well, I just go to confession, I say a few th words, and everything's dealt with, rather than despairing in your sins and running to Christ, which is really the center of his message. I'll be right back with Matthew Gaetano, Larry Arn, a professor and president of Hillsdale College. Hillsdale.edu. You really ought to listen to this entire uh, lecture by Professor Gaetano on the Reformation, and stay tuned to this, the Hillsdale Dialogue on the Hugh Hewitt Show. 34 minutes after the hour, America, it's Hugh Hewitt with... Dr. Larry Oren, president of Hillsdale College, and Matthew Gaetano, professor there, uh, who is specialist in Renaissance, Reformation, Counter-Reformation, as is attested to by the Hillsdale lecture he gave in the Western Civilization series, uh, the uh, Hillsdale College online course, Western Heritage, is available at hillsdale.edu. But all the dialogues that I've conducted with Professor uh, Gaetano, Dr. Oren, and all the other members of the Hillsdale uh, uh, family are available at hughforhillsdale.com. I wanted to make sure people understand uh, the relevance of this. Uh, to this day, to this very day, the Roman Catholic Church uh, teaches a doctrine of indulgences. Mm. Correct me if I'm wrong, Professor Gaetano, for example, a plenary indulgence is available 
for people making a good confession, saying a rosary and receiving communion within a, a space of time and indulgence is available when the door of forgiveness is open at St. Peter's. There are, there are lots of indulgences. It's just that this particular practice, which looked like selling indulgences to Luther has been abandoned. Correct. That's right. The council of Trent, uh, which is the council that meets you know, in the midst of the Reformation right after Luther died, or r- right around the time when Luther died in 1546. The Council of Trent begins in 1545, concludes in 1563. The Council of Trent uh, uh, does affirm this idea of indulgences, of, and the word indulgence just means a pardon, right? You can actually think of it along the lines of almost a presidential pardon, uh, in fact. But the, the, this doctrine of indulgences was detached from this tendency towards corruption by the way in which, in other words, you couldn't get a doctrine of indulgences, you couldn't get an indulgence through uh, giving money to the church anymore, because that was just too easy to be corrupted. And they condemned the way in which filthy lucre became a part of this penitential practice. But you're right. Uh, other than other than that, uh, the idea of indulgences has not been abandoned by and, the Roman And would Catholic Luther Church. have been as offended by today's understanding of indulgences as he was by the practice of them then, given his theology? I don't think, per- perhaps he would not have been as offended, uh, because I think he was deeply disturbed by the way in which money came into the process. But I think the, the basic thrust of Luther's concern, which was that doing these things can give one uh, comfort, can make it feel easier to please God, that that would be, I think, as disturbing with the way it's practiced today in, in that respect as it was in 15, 16, 17, and 18. That, now, that brings me to the biography part. Now we've can, said Can that. I ask him a question before please, he goes on? Because that's a perfect place. So it's Luther's view that we're all so deeply flawed and fallen that the realization of that and then throwing ourselves entirely on the mercy of God is our proper place. Does he think that's essential to salvation? He does. That And so it would carry with it a kind of an indulgence if one does that. You, you would be forgiven of your sins, certainly, uh, but and you would be pardoned, and that's what the word indulgence means, you would be pardoned by God, but it wasn't through doing you know, certain prayers or going to certain churches or on any pilgrimage, it's, it's, it is faith alone. It's that confidence in God. Well, actually, and there's a human agency in it, though. Yeah. Having that spirit. Is that true? That's necessary to salvation in Luther? For him, th- there is, you could say, a certain kind of agency, but Luther really wants to attend to the fact that the reason it's faith alone and not all these other works, and, and, and many Catholics would say works wouldn't save you before baptism, before you're actually a Christian. Um, but uh, Luther would even go as far as to say that hope and love are not actually the very things that lead to you being justified, to you being uh, declared right before God, but only faith. And the reason that that's the case in part is because faith is, for him, passive. He describes it as a, as a bag that you simply open and then it's filled by the righteousness of Christ, by, uh, by divine mercy. And so it's the very passivity, the, recept- the receptivity of faith that makes it the thing that can be that which justifies uh, alone. So I'm going to add something here. Um, so when C.S. Lewis writes about this, he tries to write in, uh, uh, 
in, in a way to make a consensus or a treaty. A treaty might be good. And so the way he treats the questions when they come up is that these are fine shades. And there are some fine shades here, right? Because I think if I read Luther rightly, it's in our power to close that bag if we want to. And if we do that, we're going to hell. So at least in that way, we have some agency in our salvation. Hold that thought. Hold that thought. The music means I've got to take the break. The special Luther edition of the Hilltale Dialogue continues with Dr. Larry Arn, President Hilltale College, Professor Matthew Gaetano on the faculty there. Stay tuned. It is the Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt with Dr. Larry Arn, President of Hillsdale College, Professor Matthew Gaetano on the faculty there. It is Luther Day on the Hillsdale Dialogues. All of the Hillsdale Dialogues are available at hughforhillsdale.com. And I don't want to break too much from what you're talking about because it, it occurs to me that Dr. Arn has raised something I've never actually thought of remotely before, that the doctrine of Luther is, in fact, a sort of prime directive indulgence. It's a sort of the uber indulgence. And I know I'm going to get in, German. I know I'm going to get in trouble for saying that, but I find that to be a fast. You, you do have agency in it. So what's the difference, Matthew? Well, Luther would also say that one can only, uh, if you will, perform this act of faith, this, this flinging yourself on the mercy of Christ, if you are enabled by the grace of God. Right? Famously, in his debate with Erasmus, he talks about man's will being bound, being enslaved, and that only God's grace can liberate it. So even the act of faith uh, is only possible by the grace of God. And, and, and in that way, he's actually not saying anything all that radical. Someone like Thomas Aquinas and yeah, certainly yeah. Augustine see, see would the, say it's only the grace of God that can make you, can help you do a supernatural act of faith in the first place as well. And that's why I make the point about fine shades, because I don't actually know any serious medieval or Renaissance Christian thinker, and I don't know as much about them as Matthew does, who doesn't agree with that, right? I mean, in other words, the decisive things are done by God. Everybody thinks that. I, I think the Catholic Church at this time thinks that, and I know they think it today, because John Paul had doctrines about that, mm-hmm. John Paul II. So it, 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 the question is, how much different was the thing he was saying? There's an argument about that. That's right. We, we really like to oversimplify things by saying there's this medieval monolithic church where everyone believed the same thing. And I think your listeners have realized how untrue that is. You know, all the debates in the Middle Ages, all the rich uh, controversies over humanism, over uh, the different theological perspectives, over poetry, all of these things were characteristic of a rich period, which we think of as the Middle Ages, which comes before the Reformation. And then and then we, we really like to oversimplify the Reformation itself. We say, you know, for Luther, it's faith alone. For the Catholic Church, it's faith and works. For Luther, it's grace alone. For, uh, for the Catholic Church, it's, it's grace uh, plus, you know, free will and cooperation with God's grace. But a lot of these things are these fine distinctions that are really easy to miss. What I think is really one of the clearest differences uh, and this will probably generate some controversy among your listeners, is uh, the different views of human sinfulness, of, of original sin, in particular the sin that we inherited from Adam. You know, for, for, for Luther, even after baptism, even after one is you know, a Christian, one is brought into 
uh, communion with God, one still retains original sin. There's still that in itself, there's something in you that's damnable, that's uh, worthy of God's condemnation. And the, the Catholic Church, by that time, certainly, was very clear that at baptism, at, at salvation, original sin is washed away, it's, it's removed. And so for Luther, this is very important because even when you're a Christian, you are what he, the famous expression, simul justus et peccator, at the same time, righteous in Christ and a sinner in yourself. And so you can never really rest, right? You can never say, well, this is a pretty good work. This is re- re- relatively pleasing to God. For, for Luther, really everything, even as a Christian, is tainted by original sin, which makes the whole doctrine of, of meriting heaven, of uh, doing these works worthy of eternal life, that makes all of that really deeply, deeply problematic, which is why he rejects it. Uh, and, and for him, it's not all about just emphasizing human sinfulness, but about making it so clear that it's, it's, it is really in a very profound sense, Christ alone, that you are sinful and you are flinging yourself. I keep on using that word because I think it's so critical for understanding Luther, flinging yourself on the mercy of God uh, as it is revealed in Christ Jesus. I also want to point out there that there, the disagreements that he has are not limited to this. And for someone who's wandering in off the street and have never even thought about Lutheran church versus Catholic church, he wrote, and I, I prepared for this by pulling to the Christian nobility of the German nation. You sent me on, on Christian liberty. But in this letter to the Christian nobility of German nation, he says to the, to the rulers around him, You've got to take on the idea that there's a spiritual power that's greater than the temporal power. You've got to tackle the Pope's authority to interpret Scripture only, and especially his authority to call a council. You've just got to rebel. So he's got lots of, he's got an agenda that's much bigger than what we've been talking about. Am I? I think that's a really, really important point. And, and, and this goes to what I think is so critical about the indulgences controversy. Because when, when Luther puts forth the 95 Theses, at the end, he says he's defending the Pope. He thinks Tetzel, this Dominican preacher, was by teaching something so false when he was saying, I'm raising money, you know, if you will, for this church in St. Peter's, that it was making the Pope look bad from Luther's perspective. And Luther saw himself as defending the Pope's honor. And when the Pope didn't really receive the 95 Theses all that warmly, Luther was deeply disturbed by this. He thought, how is it possible that what I'm teaching, which is so clear and, and such a clear expression of especially what St. Paul says in Scripture, is not being received by the powers that be. And I think in that way, I still think it's correct to think that for Luther, it's really the gospel of justification by faith alone that's central. And then his rejection of the divine institution of the papacy, his rejection of some of the other sacraments, all these other things really do follow from that. The fact that the Pope, again, would not receive the gospel as articulated by Luther was part of the reason, part of the reason, uh, mind you, that Luther uh, ended up rejecting uh, that institution. In fact, just as, as, as just a, to, cl- to clarify that point, even as late as the 15, mid-1530s in his great work, his magisterial commentary on the epistle to the Galatians, uh, Luther says something perhaps a bit hyperbolically, which is, you know, that he would you know, kiss the Pope's feet and put him on his shoulders if the Pope would affirm the doctrine of justification by faith alone. 
Wow. When we come back for our last segment this hour, uh, I'm going to ask, though, about Leo the Tenth, who's got every every dance has two partners. And Leo was the other partner to the Reformation's beginning. Don't go anywhere, America. It's Hugh Hewitt with Dr. Larry Arn and Professor Matthew Gaetano of Hillsdale. It's the Hillsdale Dialogue. Hugh for Hillsdale.com. All of the Hillsdale Dialogues dating back to last year to the present are available at Hugh for Hillsdale.com. Stay tuned. 55 minutes after the hour, America, it's Hugh Hewitt. You walked into the middle of uh, the special Luther edition of the Hillsdale Dialogue, a two-hour bonanza, normally every Friday in the third hour, the last radio hour of the week, which will be next hour. I will turn to the big issues and the big books and the big thinkers with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, and one of his colleagues. Uh, and this week, uh, because we did not do it last week, it was the 4th of July, we were spending two hours, and we picked a big subject, Martin Luther, and we will barely scratch it. Uh, but as we go into that, uh, Professor Gaetano, Leo X, he's kind of like Larry Arn. He doesn't really <laughs> react immediately, and then he tries to kill you. And so uh, I'm just curious, <laughs> would, you, would you describe how Leo X did react? You, you just said in the last segment Luther got exercised because he didn't do anything. And Leo looks to me to be a busy man who's dealing with one theologian, and he does so rather diplomatically at the Leo beginning. The- yeah, Leo X, uh, he, he is really caught up in, in, in affairs of his own concern uh, that a northern uh, German Augustinian friar, it, that was not the center of his, of his thoughts. Uh, he, when he first heard about Luther, he was disturbed by some of the things that he had to say, and especially his theolo- you know, Leo X's personal theologians were even more disturbed by some of the things that he had to say, but Leo really saw a lot of this as just a typical medieval theological debate between some Augustinians and some Dominicans, uh, these friars who were always fighting about theological nuances. And Leo at this time had bigger fish to fry. As I said, he's involved in these building projects in Rome. He is afraid about this Charles V figure. Well, he's not Charles V yet. Charles, who is the grandson of Ferdinand and Isabella, who would, if he became the Holy Roman Emperor, which he did in fact uh, become so, uh, would would not only be the Holy Roman Emperor in Germany, but also control uh, the Iberian Peninsula and this kind of still somewhat mysterious new world. And Leo was really concerned that someone with that amount of land and that amount of power would inherit the imperial the imperial crown and he really didn't want this whole luther fiasco to get in the way yeah so, you know when we come back because we had a minute i'm going to ask dr arn because it seems to me hillsdale has this graduate school of statesmanship correct we do that it would be the the one of the greatest abilities of a statesman to recognize revolution in the offing before it actually gets kindled up and, and when we come back to start the second hour, I, I want to ask you if that's not true and, and how do you do that? Because obviously Leo X judged wrong in that succession worry that he had. He put that ahead of his Luther worry and he ended up missing the whole deal. So when we come back, hour number two of the Hillsdale Dialogue this week on Martin Luther, not only on what Luther thought and did and wrote and lived, but also on those in the Roman Catholic Church at the time who did not see it coming, uh, much to the change of history. Yeah, see how I put that neutrally? Huh. <laughs> Don't go anywhere, America, except to Hugh for Hillsdale.com or to Hillsdale.edu. We'll be right back. <laughs> 